Hey everyone, welcome back to this month's edition of STT Interviews. This month, I am delighted to get the chance to sit down with Carol Flint. She was a producer on the series for 87 episodes between 1995 and 1999, and a writer for an additional 15 episodes during those same years. Carol, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you, Daniel. So let's start at the very beginning. How did you get your start in television? Oh, my start in television. I was a playwright. And I was get, had just finished getting an MFA at UC Davis. Okay. But I'm from the Midwest. I'm from Ohio. Okay. And I had been in Florida. I'd been working at a theater in Florida, and I decided to get an MFA in playwriting and went to UC Davis. And when I finished, I felt like, ah, I'm going to end up teaching theater in some small college town. Mm-hmm. And I've been in a college town in Davis. So... Um, My husband and I, and we had a five-year-old son at the time, we decided, well, let's just go to LA for a lark and (laughs) let's go there for something different, a palate cleanser. And um, we'll hate it because we don't really want to be in a big city. And um, so that's why we came to LA and I managed to have a unpaid, a 10-week unpaid internship with a gentleman named John Segret Young, who was in the process of creating China Beach. Ah. And so now it's, you know, whatever, 30 years later, I'm still in L.A. And Mm -hmm. that's kind of how things unfolded. And as you probably heard from other people, there's a lot of people from China Beach, both cast, some cast, but a lot of crew members and writers who went over and joined the ER team. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, it seems like a pretty direct pipeline from. Yeah, yeah, for sure. A lot of friendships. And the one thing I wanted to say about your introduction, that's kind of confusing to people. But, you know, those episodes that I produced, however many you said it was, 80 some. I was a writer on all of them. I was only there primarily as a writer. And then as you climb up the ladder, you become a producer. So I was always a producer. I'd climbed that ladder, which is very sort of um, uh, craft oriented in the world of television, where you take these steps up these rungs. And so I had already taken the early um, apprenticeship kind of steps during China Beach. So I was already a producer by the time I came to ER. But my mom and dad would always ask. They'd say, so, oh, I see you're this this year. What's different? And I'd say, I'm doing exactly the same thing. All right. All right. Yeah. Then that's been kind of the experience we've had with other people that IMDB has a tendency to parse things out very specifically, even though the job may not be that different. Um, They just kind of you know, senior producer versus uh, uh, story editor versus storyline. There's all these different credits. So. Exactly. Uh, so I guess that sort of leads perfectly into the next question, though. Um, obviously, there was that pipeline between China Beach uh, and ER. But what was the kind of specific sequence of events where you go from being one of the China Beach crew to hearing about this new shiny project ER? Yeah. Well, for me, after after uh, China Beach ended, I went to work with another Ch- um, China Beach writer, Pat Green, on a show on L.A. Law, a show that oh, was yeah. mid-season. And so there was this initial sort of a little bit of, you know, people going their own way during those couple of years before ER got off the ground. So when he, but I was always really good friends with John Wells and Lydia and a lot of that crowd. We were all still friends. But during the year when ER was being developed by Amblin Television, 
I had created a show with a couple of other guys that was also, that was through Universal Studios, not through Warner Brothers, where ER was, that was also an Amblin show that was called Earth 2. And it lasted for a season and it was kind of a science fiction show. And that overlapped with the, our first season of Earth 2 overlapped with the first season of ER. And so I didn't find myself rejoining that group until the second season of ER. Right, right. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, Lydia told a similar story about how um, she was working on a pilot that ultimately didn't go at the time that ER was getting off the ground and how, you know, she was like, yeah, this is there. There's this other thing going on that I'm sort of aware of and not realizing that it was going to be the thing that was going to take over the next you know, decade of her life. Almost. It's true. Nobody knew. Nobody knew. And I was always teasing John Wells that because I have this backpack that came from Amblin Television, or maybe it's a jacket. I can't remember if mm -hmm. he saw it. And he said, Amblin, when did they give those out? And I said, well, you know, they probably thought Earth 2 was going to be the big <laughs> hit. <laughs> and we got we got backpacks, and you yeah, didn't. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, right. At, well, that would have been right after Jurassic Park came out, right? So that would have That's been right. It was, you know, it was, um, and it was, it was a wonderful concept because it was people from an, who had grown up on a space station who finally had to find another earth-like planet to go yeah. to because of an infection on their on their um on their spaceship but they'd grown up in a spaceship so they'd never seen water or earth or any of this kind of stuff and it was a wonderful concept but we, but like in a lot of things in television it's it's fatal flaw was it was so expensive to do. And oh, we had imagine. all these wonderful creatures who lived on the planet, but on a television schedule where you're trying to shoot it in seven days or oh, eight yeah. days, we'd have these wonderful ET-like kind of creatures, but we came to find out, well, it takes a whole day to do a two-page scene with one of these right. things. And so it was way, it was way too um, expensive and ambitious, you know? Yeah. So it was a show that I like to say, First thing in the morning, I'd have somebody yelling at me on the telephone that we were over budget. <laughs> and the next person calling would be, but where's the hovercraft? <laughs> it's before it it's time. It was impossible. I was very happy to end up in a nice, calm, earthbound emergency room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, boy, what a talk about whiplash. Gosh, going from yeah. Earth 2 to the emergency room. <laughs> so my next question was going to be that you've kind of already sort of um, corrected me on this which is great I love that um, but uh, there's not really much difference in your uh, experience between being producer versus writer so I guess I'll pivot a little bit and ask oh, how no, does but, no it's a good question because in fact as a producer and different TV shows are different there are places sure. where it's just a title and it doesn't mean anything except you've hung in long, long enough that you've mm -hmm. moved up the ladder but there is a big difference because and especially on um, ER and on any show that John Wells was a showrunner for your producer duties you those were taken very you know really seriously and it was a lot of responsibility of not just ushering in the younger writers and overseeing them but really you know ha having a big role in all of the aspects of getting the budget to work mm -hmm. for the episode um the casting the editing if there was a problem during shooting, if an actor didn't have questions about lines or something, sure, you were sure. expected to be the adult in the room and go <laughs> down there and, you know, and keep the train running. So, so for sure. And, and PS, that's the part 
of me that probably doesn't get exercised as much when I'm not producing something. My poor husband has to put up with me <laughs> fixing things and making decisions and quickly, <laughs> quickly coming to the aid of our family and deciding a thorny question because there was a lot of problem solving involved. Right. Right. Oh, yeah, I would, I would imagine for sure. How does your um, personal uh, process change? Not necessarily on ER. I'm sure it had to, to change um, for the ER format, being that it was so fast paced and everything. But going from kind of a playwright background where you're writing stuff for the stage, how does that change when you go into a television environment? Yeah, it's really it's quite different, although I did it fearlessly because I was too stupid when I was young <laughs> to know how different they were. But I think that China Beach was probably a really good acid bath to jump into <laughs> because it was so visual yeah. and there were helicopters and there was a, you know, we, a, an army compound was built out in Lancaster. And so there was a lot of um, realism to be, de to be dealt with from the beginning and crowd scenes and uh, a lot of music. And so all these different elements that hadn't been part of my fingertips as um, a playwright had to be dealt with all of this realism. And I remember the first time I went on the set in China Beach and they were filming a USO show for the pilot. And it was like, you know, there were 300 extras there and it yeah. fell and a helicopter landed. And the, the extras who were being the GIs were screaming and yelling. And so um, it felt like you really were in Vietnam at a USO yeah. show. And so that was very helpful so that by the time I got to ER, I'd had a lot more experience. You know, when you're a playwright, even if you're prolific, you don't get to practice entrances and exits that often yeah. because the scene, you know, even if you write something that has a lot of scenes in it, but a TV writer, you, you can change the stage every 30 seconds if you want to, and sure. you don't have to bring anybody on stage. They can be there when the action begins and all of that. So I think getting a lot of experience in that before ER mm -hmm. was helpful in paving the difference between being a playwright yeah. and being a television writer. Definitely. So uh, we talked a little bit about you got your first, uh, the, the first season you were off doing Earth 2, but you s jumped into ER uh, in season two and your first credited uh, episode of the season was uh, early season two's What Life? Uh, do you have any particular memories of putting that first episode together? Not a lot. I would say I was probably super nervous. I, I can I know I was super nervous that, you know, even though ER had to have this wonderful first season and was a big hit and everything, you know, television is a pretty fickle. And even back mm -hmm. then, people could like something in the first season and quickly decide, oh, the second season isn't very good. Sure. And so I didn't want to be the episode where that happened. <laughs> <laughs> and so as a newcomer, I was probably nervous and and making sure I was really going to emulate the style. One of the biggest differences about being a TV writer versus a playwright is you, you're really trying to um, fit in with a style that's been created. And right. so there's a certain amount of, even if it, and it does evolve, it evolves as the actors grow into their roles and you're writing for that ensemble and it evolves as um, you uh, realize how, what they haven't done yet and what they could do and all of that, but still you are emulating a style. And I, you know, I thought that was the thing I had to do first. And sure. so I was glad when people watched it and there wasn't a noticeable fall off in the viewership. <laughs> 
do you have any sort of like extra um I don't know exactly what the word like extra cachet coming in the door being that you're one of the China Beach alums like do you get a little bit more trust from the higher ups in that sense versus somebody who's you know their first job uh, in as a TV writer yeah I'm sure it was comforting I was with old friends and all of that certainly sure. I didn't know the cast members or any any of right. them and to some of the other writers there may have been um resentment even I don't know <laughs> but because you know who you know I was kind of in with the in crowd you know sure. and that was a blessing and um so uh but I don't you know I don't remember I don't remember anything uh where where it felt like uh oh i've got to prove my i i had to prove myself that i could maintain the er mm -hmm. um tone right. <laughs> that yep. had been set yes <laughs> Uh, but I don't remember uh, feeling uh, unwelcome in any way or especially welcomed in any way. It's the one thing is the one thing about life and episodic television is it is so busy. It's no surprise right. that we wrote about a busy ER. We were all like hitting the ground running every day <laughs> and working until the late hours of the night and everything and and trying to fit our families in when we could around the edges and um, we were at that stage in our lives where we were doing everything a million miles a minute. And there's right, not right. really a lot of time for in, uh, retrospection or introspection or anything else. You just have to hit the ground running. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, we, we've sort of experienced that ourselves on the podcast side of things of like, you don't really get much of a chance to rest on your laurels and go, wow, that was a really great episode we did last week because you're already making the next one. And that's I'm sure exactly. in television, it's times times 100,000. It's ex yeah, that's exactly it, you know, like, oh, oh, we finished shooting that episode. Oh, wait, that means, you know, day eight of shooting that episode means that we're having the read through of the next episode. And, <laughs> yeah. And the one you did, you shot a few weeks ago is coming on the air tonight, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Just I'm exhausted and I wasn't even there. <laughs> Um, so as I told you uh, before we got started today, um, normally when I write these questions, I try to write them as generally as possible since we know it's been a while and all that good stuff. But as I was going through your IMDb page and looking at all these episodes that you were kind of the head writer on, you wrote some of the most fun episodes of the whole series. Like you wrote some of the ones that were our kind of sleeper favorites, the ones that, you know, don't maybe get talked about as much with some of the other, uh, you know, your love's labor losts and your, you know, some of those other ones. But there were just like ones that were uh low-key hits for example uh jumping ahead to season three uh baby shower where uh which is a really special fun episode where nurse connie uh much like real life actress connie marie brazelton is about to give birth and it was such a cool idea to center a whole episode around something that was actually kind of i'm sure a special moment for cast and crew as well so kind of how did all that come together yeah, no, and I'm glad that you reminded me about Connie Murray being actually pregnant at the same time. If you had told me, I would have said, oh, yeah, I remember Connie <laughs> Murray's actual baby shower. I, I don't know that these many years later I would have remembered, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, that whole thing about the beet soup and everything, yeah. about going into labor. And so, yeah, that's a nice thing about a long-running show where you get to know people enough that their real life starts to flow into mm -hmm. it. The, it's interesting, the idea of um, of a lot of babies being born, you know, from the beginning, there was there were births in the ER during, right. you know, but there but but including the one you mentioned, the the love's labor lost, you know, right. But but um, 
but there was always a need to sort of stand on your head to get in that birth. It always had to be because why didn't they go to OB? You know, why didn't exactly. they go up to that floor? And especially on a show like ER, where, where the research, we really tried to be true to medical reality. So the idea of creating something like this a plumbing problem on the OB where the, <laughs> the, you know, the water was pouring out of everything was a funny way to just make it be that all the babies had to come down. And of course there was the great OB nurse who was a thorn in Dr. Green's side. And so there was a reason why it was really good uh, for his story and arc for him to be able to prove himself and everybody right. to be able to prove themselves as equal to the task of birthing all these babies. And, um, you know, so, so all of that kind of came together with the idea of how much fun it would be to just see baby after baby. And um, somebody else had actually, it turned out when I pitched it, and then this I can't remember very well, but it turned out that there had been somebody who had already said something like doing an episode with a lot of babies. Mm -hmm. And um, and so because John Wells is a very fair person and everything, uh, she also got a story credit on that episode. Um, I never even, we didn't work on the story together or anything like that, but you know, Back then, if somebody said something like that, you didn't want to steal their idea. Oh, yeah. It wasn't somebody in the show. It wasn't somebody who was on the writer's staff. So it wasn't such a unique idea, <laughs> it turned out, but a really, really fun one. It really, and when I watched it again in preparation for this conversation, I was surprised at how many of my different friends and you know different people's labor stories and delivery stories oh i fit that in did i uh, you know <laughs> there, were, uh, there was i got to use a lot yeah yeah so um moving and this is going to be kind of a recurring theme here it's gonna be like remember this episode and this episode because again you were just there for so many of the ones that we kind of talked about uh, ad nauseum but um a big one probably i would say one of the early seasons kind of biggest um man we could really screw this up if we do it wrong kind of moments uh was in season three union station uh famous for being sherry stringfield's final episode for um i'm sure nobody knew it at the time for five years um but being that this was the show's first main cast departure how did you approach writing the episode in such a way that you would hopefully give her character a satisfying ending well now this i really can tell you i hope you haven't heard this from anybody else but we were very nervous about because that final thing was going to be shot in Chicago. You know, right. we'd go to Chicago and we'd we'd have scenes from like four or five episodes mm -hmm. that we would bank and we'd shoot them all at once and then we'd put them into the episodes that they belonged in because right. we couldn't go every time, but we wanted to often have a, a, a flavor of Chicago in there. So we knew that that final race to Union Station and the shooting at Union Station, it was it was possible that people would notice and we didn't want the word to get out. Now, have you ever heard this story before? Not, not in the specifics and certainly not from anybody who was there. The kind of the word has been out there over the years that they didn't want anybody to know that Sherry was leaving until she left. Right. So when the script came out, Dr. Green chased her to the station and told her he loved her and she melted into his arms. Mm. We knew that was not going to, it was a fake ending. And Sherry was hip to it and Anthony was hip to it. But as happens on episodic television, um, 
when the director got the script, it was Tom Moore and he had directed a couple of other ERs, but he was a guest director mm -hmm. and he got the script and nobody had really prepared him to know <laughs> that that's not really the ending. And he, and you know, they get the script like the night before, I think the director gets the script the night before uh, and he comes in to the read through or whatever the very first, it probably wasn't read through, but to his very first set, day of prep with tone meetings and casting and all of this stuff. And he comes in telling me how much he loves the ending oh, and no. how it's so great. And nobody does anything romantic like that anymore. Oh, no. And uh, television has gotten so cynical. And um, I have to break the news to him that it's actually going to be a heartbreaking ending oh, and that no. that's just there for the cast and the crew and the wide distribution right. and that on the day, long after we shoot the episode, because we have to wait until the next Chicago trip, that when we go next week, next month, I don't know how long it was to Chicago, on the day of shooting it, there's going to be some blue pages or pink pages, you know, our revisions are in sure. a rainbow of colors. and. Um, whatever color we were up to by then there on the day of there was going to be some yellow pages in which she was going to go ahead and get on the train wow. and um and uh, so he had to adjust to that after having declared himself such a fan of the other and of course he did and he did a, such a beautiful job of directing he was one of our favorites in those early years um but i'm sure it didn't help any the feeling of oh the writers really run television and the directors just <laughs> come in <laughs> and are the traffic cops that terrible um cliche was probably made more true in this case <laughs> oh, so wow. however we really did we wanted them to be to, to get more to the creative part of the answer to your question we really did want tony we wanted dr green and um and sherry we wanted them to we wanted their characters to have a satisfying emotional ending mm -hmm. to the exit. We didn't want his, we didn't want Dr. Green's love to go undeclared. We wanted that to happen mm -hmm. and to just he, have her hear it, but also have her know that her life was going in a different direction and that her love for him was as a colleague and as a friend and so um, it, it made for a big exit. And because she had so many early, more than any of the other characters, she'd had early, in the early episodes, she had had family trauma. Right. We didn't know the other people's families nearly as well as we knew her, or they weren't as problematic, maybe is a better way of saying it. Mm -hmm. um, and so her being able to go there to repair her family and restart her career seemed like a good thing to do for her character. And then of course, who saw, who among us foresaw that she would come back. Yeah, for sure. A decade later, you know? Yeah. So in the, the time period before she announced or, or, or made her final decision that she was going to leave, was there ever serious consideration given as far as you can recall to actually going through with it and putting the two of them together? Cause I know that's a, another kind of topic of debate amongst fans is whether or not uh -huh. they were ever going to do the Ross and Rachel thing. I am, I'm going to guess that it was discussed ad nauseum, as you said, <laughs> ad nauseum. I, because everything always was in those right, writers right. room meeting, 
it was kind of leave no stone unturned, do you know? Mm -hmm. And so everybody, everybody probably went down every road wondering about it, you know? And, um, and I'm sure that it was also, you know, it was also probably concurrent with all of the conversations about um, Nurse Hathaway mm -hmm. and Dr. Ross, you know, like there were already was a will they won't they even though they had, you know, right. And so part of the decision making probably was about balancing out. Sure. That and and then, you know, I think that I think that early on it was it was clear that Sherry's heart and dreams and soul were not really in continuing um, in this huge juggernaut of ER that was going to go on forever and ever and ever, and that her mm -hmm. spirit felt more restless and didn't really want to be tied down to that and everything. So, so all of those things probably became part of the decision-making. Sure, and of sure. course, we always delayed making Dr. Green happy as long as we could, <laughs> because uh, Tony is so good at being this heart and soul of the ER at the same time that his own private life is suffering. Yes, which is a perfect segue uh, into my next question, P quite possibly the episode that has spawned the most uh, enduring fan debates in the 20 plus years since this episode aired uh, season three's random acts, which you wrote uh, where Mark is attacked in a bathroom, uh, setting him on a very rough course for the next season. Plus uh, long, a topic of fan debate. Was there ever an intention um, either by you as the writer of this episode or just the writers at large to reveal the identity of Mark's attacker? Or was it always meant to just be an act of random violence? I am pretty sure it was always intended to be a random act of violence, kind of related in some ways dramatically to what I just said about Tony. But but because so many of the victims who come into the ER are, there is a randomness sure. to their, I mean, yeah, some of them have been victims of crime, but even a lot of the crime victims, there's randomness. There's not the satisfaction of a happy and ending sure. or even, even a satisfying ending. So I feel pretty sure, I felt pretty confident that that random acts, that was the title for a reason, you know? Mm -hmm. And there were a couple of people who um, accuse him or threaten him in that episode, none of whom would pan out to be right. that. And, and that was, I think that that was in the design. Now I will say, I did watch Lydia's episode that followed it just to make sure I wasn't making that <laughs> up in my mind. And, and, and it confirmed what I felt that again, for, to add to Mark's trauma, um, Dr. Green's trauma and everything, and to make it all that more humiliating and everything, it seemed better to make it be random. Mm -hmm. um, the whole thing about doing a hospital show, especially a one like ER, but you know, it's not like a law show or a cop show where so much of it is about getting to the truth. Sure, it sure. is a little bit more like you're fighting with the design of life. Like, why were we given these bodies that are so vulnerable? <laughs> why, why do we die? I, I'm, you know, it is a little bit, you're, it's a little bit more theological and sure. philosophical in, 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 um, and its answer is never really there. So I think it was random. Yeah. And that's kind of 
been the accepted uh, answer by the fans as well. There's always people who try to claim it was some one person or the other um, because of how well the story was told. And another choice in that episode that I really appreciate is that, like you said, there's multiple people who have run-ins with Green that episode or, or could potentially be the, the, the one that did it uh, and don't end up panning out. Not only that, but you also dress them exactly the same. And the, yes. the, the wardrobe matched the assailants to a that's team. a really yeah yeah that's a really good point and the way that um you know a smooth running and er was very smooth running com- considering how you know a smooth running show one of the benefits of it uh, um and of the fact that you know by and large the scripts came out in time for the different departments for our wonderful prop people and wardrobe people and the lighting they came out we really worked hard to try to get them to come out not at the last minute Mm-hmm. not like the minute they were shooting it or something because we knew we needed the we counted on our our fellow artists who were sure. in wardrobe or whatever to be able to think these things through and to be able to help us do things like what you're talking about make sure that the wardrobe doesn't give any kind of false clue yeah. inadvertently even yeah yeah so in uh, the other aspect or the other side of the fan debate from that episode, like I said, that's a very dense episode when it comes to fan debate. Um, it's also a hot topic because of the famous romance novel subplot <laughs> that is circulating the ER that day. Uh, and at the end of the episode, the identity of the author is left anonymous. But was there ever anyone specific in mind in your uh, head canon that was going to be the writer of uh, the romance novel? Um, you know, in my head, it's funny because when you say in your head, it is funny how the writing group, the room of writers, they do create sort of a big brain all together. Yeah. And yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if you talk to another writer who felt something differently, but I watched it because I didn't really remember exactly. Mm-hmm. So I won't say this is the definitive answer, <laughs> but I will say that in watching it, I felt quite certain that it, Dr. Weaver. Okay. All right, there it is. I just watched Laura Ennis, who is such a great actress. And and by the way, this really applies to, in re-watching it, watching that cast, everybody always talks about how much dialogue there was in ER. And it's true. Mm-hmm. But a lot of it is recitative. I mean, a lot of it is just, you know, the medical jargon. It's not right. the acting. They never missed a trick of like that little look over to the side. Mm-hmm. You never miss the character reason for why in that particular episode, Noah missed something or or Hathaway and Ross, you know, they the subtext was always so beautifully carried through. And the reason why I would vote for it being Weaver, even though it's true, the episode never said, is because when I watched it, you know, I thought, I thought Laura played, watching her very subtle performance, I thought she played in the scene where Hathaway um accuses her Mm -hmm. i thought she played a moment of being caught but she was too smart (laughs) and then she immediately started deflecting things toward hathaway writing it and um and so those were the clues but they were all given to me by laura ennis so i (laughs) (laughs) i can't say for sure that we didn't have somebody else in mind yeah well that's as close as we've ever gotten to a definitive answer (laughs) so i'm i'm gonna take it um but uh 
yet another unique episode that you wrote, probably the most unique in the whole show's history, um, which probably the one you were born to write, the season four premiere Ambush, a.k.a. the live episode. Did your prior experience as a playwright make you kind of the choice to write an episode like that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The idea had been floating around during the first season. I think that when when they first started shooting these big long oneers with the Steadicam and, you know, it'd be like they reached the point where they were exceeding the length of a film. Um, <laughs> you know, it was yeah. like, I don't know. I don't know what it is. It's something like 13 or 14, you know, because we were still shooting on film then. Right. So whatever the length of that reel, they had actually reached the length of how far they could go. But they'd had the experience of um, having these big long runs, which aren't typical on TV of like, you know, usually in TV, there's this thing about like, what time do you get the first shot off? You know, like call was to six and then they did makeup. And then, they, and, the, and one of the things they have to report in that the studio and the network studio sees and everything is when did you get your first shot? Mm -hmm. And so first call was at six, first shot was at eight seventeen. you know, like that's on a normal day. Well, if they were doing one of those big winners, call was at six. Eight o'clock went by, nine o'clock went by, 10 o'clock went by, 11 o'clock went by. Oh. There wasn't a first shot yet. Then at 11.15, they've shot 10 pages. <laughs> <laughs> the first shot is off and they've shot 10 pages. So um, so those all of those things have been going on and Tony and, and George had been saying, we should just do a live episode. We can do this thing live. But when I arrived as a playwright, for sure, I was the only person on the writing staff and the writing producing staff, I should say, who said, yeah, people have been, been doing theater since uh, 300 BC. I think we can do that live, yeah. you know? And I, and, um, and I really volunteered myself for the job. By then I had kind of, I didn't know Tommy Shlami, but he had directed an episode and kind of jumped on the bandwagon of Tony and George. And I'd run into him at a fundraiser or something and we'd talked. And so, you know, we were all talking ourselves into it. <laughs> and when I wrote the episode, I wrote it very um, left brain, right brain in terms of knowing the set very well. Mm -hmm. And I did it like a board game. I did it. They, everybody said it was like Candyland or something, but I wanted that first draft to look plausible to a live um, producer who would understand like, oh yeah, if we have these three cameras running with all this coaxial cable and everything, because we had to have cable down the hallways sure. in order to use these three cameras and everything. I can be prepping, in, I had to keep the action away from each other. So right. I had to make sure that if there was a scene in trauma one, I had to make sure the next thing that was going to pick up was going to be in the teacher's or the teacher's lounge, the doctor's <laughs> lounge, you know, it was so that yeah. I had, and, um, and then PS, there were the dramatic problems of, you know, making sure that there was a reason why it looked so different than ER did every week. Mm -hmm. Why did it look, why wasn't the lighting and the sound and all of that? Why did it look different? And so then that was the documentary film crew and that fed, to Anthony's story of trying to right. not face what had happened to him. And um, and yeah, I, I got myself in, all involved <laughs> in it. And yes, it is a super, the most exciting thing ever in my career, for sure, oh, yeah. hands down, 
Hands I mean, down. So much fun. When we when we covered that episode, we must have talked for a solid two hours about it because it you could almost write a, a, a thesis about it because of each it, – it's such a choreographed thing. I mean, the show's always a choreographed thing with all the background movement and – um, all those other things. And like you said, you're, you're kind of planning your chaos around the cameras so that you can move your pieces around. And I, I thought that was such a smart uh, choice on, you know, the show's part to have that stationary camera in the lounge where you could cut to something while you're out shuffling all the pieces in the main room and you can do that away from all the cameras and you can still have these very, you know, the, the usual ER moments um, and maybe have a little fun with it too, because they're, quote unquote don't know they're on camera like you get to you get to play with it a little bit and it's just such a like i always say like just the the gall to even want to do it is such a a crazy thing like take a show like that that is so chaotic and so fast-paced and then throw a live element on top of it it just seems uh, it seems like anybody any rational person would look at it and go, hell no, we can't do that. Like, that's crazy. But to do it not only once, but twice, do it, you know, for the East Coast and the West Coast. Once once we went down the crazy road, we really, we really all, all, you know, all hell broke loose because the other thing was it needed to, it, we wanted it to have all of the elements of an ER. We wanted there to be an old person. We wanted there to be a baby. We wanted there to be a child, you know, yeah. more and more and more unpredictable elements. And I say the old person because um, one of the things we found when with the older actors, which is just true about being old, as I now know, is that uh, memorizing new lines is tough, even for really great actors. And there were more times than we wished when we would have to have end up having cards for Mm. older actors. So we had to find a guy and he was great who could be the old man who's so funny and then dies um, on Noah somebody who was old but who could really learn that and be dependent mm-hmm. he kind of had a long run where to be dependent on to not go up right and yeah. um and the same thing for the little boy who had bit his baby brother <laughs> yes baby sister or whatever it was you know i mean with the baby crying and all of that um we we had to we didn't give that little kid a whole lot to do, but he had to sit there and look guilty, you know, and <laughs> he was little, who knew what he was gonna do, you know, not to mention the baby and everything, but um, all of those things. And then the final decision, it was just a few days before we aired that all of a sudden we were like, wait a minute, all of our friends and family aren't gonna see it live. Everybody we know, <laughs> we're, they're gonna be seeing it three hours later. What's wrong with this picture? Well, if we do it once, wait, there's mountain time. So if we do it once, we can wait during that. We'll still have an hour to reset and oh we can gosh. do it again. So oh. we really definitely went berserk. And and it was so cool because we spent what is usually a week of shooting. We spent that whole week rehearsing. And of course that was exactly like a play. That was not a typical week of we spent the whole week you know blocking and then rehearsing and then tech rehearsing and um um it was really really thrilling yeah, and yeah. makes me nervous now to think <laughs> and and also too i mean say nothing of the fact that it's the season premiere so you have had to shoot your first what two or three episodes of the season out of sequence to That's right. make up That's for right. it i think And I think we did, I think we had the script ready in time so that the actors knew what was gonna happen in that. I hope we did, I think we did. (laughs) So that um, that wasn't unpredictable to them. Um, 
we also then hired, and boy, at the moment, I'm sorry to say, I'll send you an email telling, but there was a great <laughs> guy who helped us produce it, who had just finished producing um, the Olympics in Atlanta. That's, yeah, we, we talked uh, recently to uh, Dave Comites. Um, oh, yeah. And, yeah, and yeah, yeah. He, Dave was talking about how, you know, obviously on the camera side of things, like you have these they bring in, he said, I think the word he used was ringers, Like he was like, they brought in all these guys who, you know, do the Olympics and the world series and the super bowl. And like, they know live TV back in front and he's having to like, kind of teach them how to shoot ER. Like he's like, yes, I know we're doing it live, but there's a very specific way that we do things. And I think the guy, I'm thinking his name was Tom Park, but I might be wrong, but he was the producer and he very wisely said to me on the day we were the day we were doing it you know it was the sun was starting to go down and he said every day at the olympics we'd always stop and watch the sunset and say <laughs> what a beautiful sunset and <laughs> and we really needed calming down we super needed calming down because we were you know and especially me the actors had a lot of things to do the all the crews had a lot of things to do background had a lot of of things to remember and do i had nothing to do but sit there and you know even tommy got to at least call the cues from the truck i was just sitting beside him totally useless Ugh. um for the second show steven spielberg came and sat in the truck oh, and wow. and i was i was like oh my gosh this is going to be a disaster because on top of everything else now people have steven spielberg looking over their shoulder you know like oh this is like going to be this is going to be horrible. Everybody's going to be starstruck and nobody's going to be able to do their job. I was nervous. And um, when he came you for the, for the truck, the satellite truck, you know, you walk up these kind of like portable stairs that mm -hmm. are hanging off the side of the truck, you know, kind of makes the truck shake or whatever. And, and, and Steven, I think he had like a sprained arm or a broken something. He had a cast on his arm okay. and um, he was coming up the stairs and he spilled his Coke. And everybody just instantly relaxed. It was like afterwards, I thought, I bet he did that on purpose. I bet he does that all the time to get people to treat him like another human being. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but when he did that, people relaxed. We cleaned up the coke and we sat down and then, you know, and then he sat and watched and it was great. It was, it was by myself. He really, he and I were the two people who had nothing to do. And um, <laughs> he had, was such a great supporter of those first few few years uh -huh. of of um, of ER. I actually have a note from him about how much he loved. Uh, oh wow! Baby shower, you know, like I'll I'll keep that for yeah. sure. But but he, he was just wonderful. And after different after each scene, he would he would whisper to me during the live episode, the second live one. He'd say, "Did you write that?" <laughs> and I <think> that. <laughs> it's got to be a good feeling yes it was it was indeed i i was uh able to uh i was able to be beneficiary of of some of his generosity <laughs> oh man wow again every we, we've we've talked to so many people who uh were either acting in that episode or behind the camera or it feels like we've talked to almost everybody who was involved with it in some way shape or form and every time i hear about it it still makes my heart race and it still makes my palms sweaty. Like it's, I, I feel like I'm there and I feel like I'm responsible for, you know, 40 million people's enjoyment of this live thing. And it's like the episode was 25 years ago. It was, it's okay. It's over with, but it's still just, if the way that it's clearly still so fresh in all you guys' minds puts you right back in that environment. 
Yeah, you know, it is. And I went on and wrote a, a two hour um, TV movie that I'd hoped would be a pilot, but they never picked it up for TNT that was about the early days of television. And it was very much based on what an exhilarating experience it was. Oh, and wow. when I did the research, I was talking to people who were in their 80s and 90s, and some of them had really gone on to have uh, extraordinary careers, you know, the Delbert Mans and the, you know, and um, uh, so many names that it's impossible to name them all. But um, that when they talked about those early days of live TV, they all came alive. Oh, they, yeah. they wanted to talk about nothing else. It was, you know, I think there's something about doing something like that live. And it is more than a play because technical things can go wrong. Sure. Yeah, for sure. So uh, shifting gears just a little bit, you also wrote or co-wrote uh, several of the quote unquote outside the ER episodes, uh, including Family Practice, where Mark goes to visit his parents in San Diego uh, and Middle of Nowhere, where Benton takes a temporary assignment in a rural Mississippi clinic. Uh, did you enjoy the creative challenge of writing episodes that took place outside of County General's four walls, or did you prefer kind of the structure of a more traditional episode format? Well, I think I probably liked doing both, but it was really fun to leave the ER with our characters as time went on, because we knew them so well mm -hmm. in their professions that to see them you know, in the case of Green, to see him with his parents and yeah. being, acting a little petulant or a little adolescent or something, <laughs> because, you know, he was a, such an adult in the ER. Sure. And, and um, to see him um, do what many people do when they're in their 40s, which is reevaluate their relationship with their parents mm -hmm. and to be able to do it in his home, you know, it really did justice, I thought, to the characters to be able to do some of those kind of things. And, um, and, and yeah, it was really fun to go, even though there was a medical aspect to it and we were, you know, it was really fun for me to go down to San Diego to go to the Naval Hospital and see yeah. what that was all about. And, um, and so character wise, and then as a creative challenge, it was, it was fun to hear. They, they were usually placed somewhere where it would give a lot of the other cast a break or, you know, like where it was in the shooting schedule. Mm -hmm. And, um, but then you'd look at where it was going to fall in the season and be able to do something like, you know, bring Green's relationship with Marishka Hargitay, be able to bring that to a head in a way that things right. might have continued on for a long time if she hadn't like invited himself <laughs> to his family's home. Uh, something uh. that I had to do when I was early dating my husband and it worked out okay in our case <laughs> but but stuff like that where you know you get to push buttons and then with benton yeah he was to be able to see him be a fish out of water because he's so proficient and so right. and it's sort of come up with a reason why he for his own you know career advancement and all of that why he volunteered to ever do this and why um it was you know it was foisted upon him and he kind of was unprepared because the place was changed and all of that you know mm -hmm. that was really fun to do for the characters fun to do for those who went on those trips um the the san diego one didn't you know take us anywhere we right. just got to shoot around in la but the middle of nowhere we shot in florida 
where mm-hmm. I had lived for a number of years and out, outside of Orlando, hard to believe when you look at it, but that those those locations were all within an hour of Disneyland yeah, <laughs> or Disney World. Um, but, uh, you know, there we got to really go out of town with at least, you know, with me and with Jonathan Kaplan, the wonderful director who directed that episode. And um, and 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 really just with Peter Benton, you know, just with Eric LaSalle, I think we, you know, the portion that was in, that wasn't, you know, the bookends were in the hospital, right. but, and then to do the casting and, you know, we really wanted people who were actors who had Southern accents, who had real Southern accents. So we did a lot of the casting was done locally. Mm-hmm. So we kind of didn't know, well, you never know in episodic who's going to play those guest roles until the last minute. Sometimes you don't know until the day before, like <laughs> the contract isn't worked out or whatever, but to be able to just go there and during prep, look at, these local actors and you know people from the south and that was you know that was fun it was like making a little movie or something for sure yeah and in the in the san diego episode um such it's both a credit to the writing and to the acting of um bonnie bartlett and john cullum to be able to um adequately portray so much history and so much um kind of interpersonal drama between them and mark and each other and it's not an episode that really like hits you over the head with a lot of heavy family drama uh, exposition. Like you don't do a lot of telling about what has happened amongst these three people over the course of their lives. You kind of just feel it. And it's such a, a credit to, you know, like I said, not only the writing, but also those two actors as well. They do an incredible job of really making you feel that as though you've lived with the last 30 years of history between them. It's for sure. I mean, that's another thing about being able to attract to these kind of actors, like you're saying, um, John Cullum and uh, Bonnie Bartlett, uh, to because of the prestige of the show. And mm-hmm. maybe others have talked about this, but it cannot be overemphasized how, and I think especially for the writers, because the writers are a little bit more vulnerable to it than anybody else. But being on a big hit show like that, we just got to write our episodes. We yeah. didn't get notes. We didn't get this episode doesn't work. We didn't get this storyline <laughs> can't happen. We did, We got calls from the network saying, oh, I really love that. <laughs> yeah. It, the luxury, I mean, I'm sure I did not thoroughly appreciate it at the time as much as I should have. Right. But the best thing about being on something that is a hit, the best thing creatively is you have all this time where you're not redoing something because you just couldn't quite sell it at the story stage right. or you couldn't quite sell it. You know, there was just a lot of trust and man, it left a lot of time to be creative and, and have fun and do your thing. And, and then, and it, and it echoed into all different departments and everything, but the casting, it was like, yeah. Oh my yeah. gosh to be able to get people of that caliber was amazing. Yeah, for sure. Um, so during shifting gears again a little bit, during season five, you were co-showrunner uh, with Lydia Woodward. Uh, how does your perspective have to change when you are responsible for the entire creative direction of the show versus just a single episode? Daniel, I'm going to tell you what I told my parents back then. It's no different. <laughs> I'm doing the same. <laughs> it isn't. It isn't really that much different because 
because I was lucky enough to be on two shows early on that were like long running shows like China Beach and, and ER, where the writers were, cons- were expected to be producers and be the problem solvers and be the adults. Um, because there was practice at that. On the one side, it wasn't that big of a difference. And on the other side, you know, John Wells never left the show. Mm-hmm. He was nice enough to share that title and that end card with us, along right. with Michael Crane. However, um, he was always there to be the 300 pound gorilla if you needed him, <laughs> you know? And he, it wasn't like he started, I don't remember him missing writers meetings or, you know, anything like that. Sure. It was, it was just that he was sharing some of the leadership, you know, yeah. and some of the, and some of the credit and, and it had happened very, like everything did on that show in a very organized, natural way. I talked about that latter, but you know, because the, the senior writers, which during those years, it was John and Lydia and Paul Manning and myself during those first seasons two through four, I guess, probably. But because of that, each one of us in between our own episodes, we were assigned to usher in the episodes of the more junior writers Mm -hmm. and help them begin to get practice at doing the editing and the casting. They didn't go alone. Right. They went with the producer. And so it was kind of gradual the way that would happen to where when you're finally in the edit bay and you are the person getting it down to time and making the final cut. I feel pretty sure that John Wells still came through at the Mm -hmm. 11th hour and hopefully by then the episode was down to time and he might say, I'd like, you know, you're hoping by then you're not, he's not (laughs) gonna have to spend five hours there. He's gonna spend an hour there. He's gonna watch, he's gonna, add a 30 seconds to this and another take from Benton or a silent pair of cuts or something, you sure. know, but he was never, he was never gone. And so we got to be executive producers and, uh, and also have his backup. Yeah. He, he didn't get out of the car. He just let somebody else drive for a little while. That's right. And yes. Yeah. yeah. You, you mentioned uh, in there uh, a name that um, unfortunately we don't get a chance to talk about or talk to Paul Manning. Um, what, what, uh, you know, being that he's no longer with us and that he's somebody um, that obviously we would love to get the chance to talk to about all this fun stuff. What was um, kind of his um, writing style? Like when you're working with him on a particular episode or just what was it? Some of the things about him that fans of the show watching now should know about him. He would never settle for anything. From my perspective, he would have, 10 fantastic ideas and he would still wait until he had the 11th one (laughs) before he would start writing on it me i was grateful if i had one right Um, i'd go that's good enough um he was not a settler he he was always pushing himself more and more and more and um he was a you know i had worked with him before i actually i actually I don't know if it's true, but I probably recommended him because he had worked on uh, uh, on uh, or done an episode for L.A. Law during okay. that period. And so I knew he was a great writer and 
you know, to be able to, it's, it's a, it's tragedy that he died so young, but he was super passionate and all of us were, and it made for a room where we just had arguments like crazy. <laughs> uh, uh, I remember Paul um, arguing for, I, I can't even remember, you know, um, something North Hathaway was going to do a strip tease or something. Do you know? <laughs> he was arguing so passionately. And I mean, we spent an hour and eventually he sort of, he sort of saw the light. I mean, we didn't do the strip tease episode, sure. but, um, but I loved working with somebody like that. Just, yeah. it didn't, this show wouldn't have worked if people weren't incredibly committed and everything. Now, I will also say, and it sounds like I'm telling bad stories about Paul, but these are wonderful stories that I love. Um, people didn't want to write the episode after Paul. Oh, and it wow. wasn't just because his episode was so great. It was because his outline, which he would have redone 10 times, each <laughs> one of them spectacular and totally different than the other. The, the outline ultimately wouldn't line up with the episode you'd write because he <laughs> could never stop being better and better and better. And so you weren't sure what you were going to get handed. If you were like <laughs> me and you were nervous about deadlines and so you're trying to work ahead, you would be finding out, oh, you know, you thought that in your episode they were going to finally get together, but oh no, Paul had decided they should do it in his. It works better there. And he would be right. It would work really great. Yeah. But for somebody who um, is nervous about deadlines, it was um, it was, <laughs> it was uh, nerve wracking. But I think that's part of how writers work well when they're in a group of writers is mm -hmm. your other people's styles are forcing you out of your comfort zone all the time. And, um, and you learn to respect that people do things in different ways. I mean, I used to get a stomachache because Lydia writes everything at the last minute and I would always <laughs> be feeling that, but, but your deadline is coming, my dear friend, aren't you, you know, hello, hello, your deadline <laughs> is coming and I see you out taking a walk or something. And, um, now over time I came to learn, oh, guess what? That's how she does it, you yeah. know? And, and that's what so was so great about the writer's room is that yeah. people didn't step on each other's toes. And John Wells created a very democratic atmosphere where you came to love everybody else. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so this is kind of our, our, a little bit of a lightning round here as we're getting into some of the, the favorites. Is there a storyline or episode from your time on the show that you would consider to be your favorite or maybe one that you're just the most proud of? Storylines that I really like are, um, I like the Jeannie Boulay storyline uh, when she yes. got HIV. And I know that, I I know others have said it because I heard, I, I listened to Samantha's. Yes. You know, but it, it's my answer, you know, AIDS was the COVID of our time period For sure. and it was happening right in front of us. And it wasn't brand new. It had been going on for a decade, but it was something society had not come to grips with, even as the medicine had begun to work out, not painless, but better and better treatments. Mm -hmm. And um, and so I can really, really remember, one of the things about being on ER is that all of these, you do an episode about something and then all of these really wonderful foundations for various horrible diseases mm 
mm-hmm. want to give you an award at their banquet. <laughs> and there were so many of those that the writers kind of had to divvy them up. And it would be like, you know, I went last Wednesday. <laughs> Can you go this Wednesday? But I remember being at one for and I can't remember the order that these things happen, but I can remember it being ones for AIDS, for Hollywood Cares, for AIDS, where they were talking about the latest science and and realizing and even saying whenever I gave my speech that we would be dedicated at ER for sure. We always wanted to keep up with the medicine to make sure that we were telling stories that weren't death stories. I didn't know what it was going to be yet, but I knew living with HIV or I was hearing living with HIV was going to be possible. Mm-hmm. And I knew that ER would want to tackle that. And I can remember that. And then I can remember when we first started talking and we initially started talking in the room about Michael Beach, who played Jeannie's ex-husband, about him being HIV positive. And, and in my memory, um, John Wells had to step out of the room for a minute because probably it was probably a casting thing. He never left the writer's room, but if somebody's contract was being, deal was being made, you know, he might have to leave for a few seconds. He stepped out and we started talking and we said, wait a minute, why are, why would we give the storyline of surviving with AIDS? Why would we give it to a wonderful actor, but who was not in our main cast? And, yeah. and, and, and um, why wouldn't we give it to Jeannie herself? And knowing that it was going to be an uphill battle, because even after all those years, there was still a lot of stigma about AIDS. Yeah. And, and um, so that storyline. And, and I remember lots of in, room, in the writer's room arguments about, um, well, she's a health caregiver. Will her career be over? Will people let somebody draw their blood? And, and that those questions, and, and they were good ones. You know, I mean, I remember the controversy that yeah. was so prevalent there and um and then and, and then of course glory rubens just playing it and being the perfect person uh. to play that and to take it on and to and to i didn't have to be part of that conversation when john talked to her but i'm sure it took a lot of trust on her part because the aids stories that had been filmed so far even on ER had -hmm. been stories of death. Oh yeah. You know, and the Philadelphia story and all these wonderful films and everything, but it took a lot of trust on her part to really believe we were not going to kill her. Right, yeah, which is, uh, we we, we say it all the time, I'm sure our audience is tired of hearing it at this point, but we say it all the time that one of our favorite creative decisions of the entire 15 years of the show was that you never the writers the creative team whatever you want to call it never succumb to the what i'm sure would have been the pressure to flip that switch to go to that well to maybe you know to have that kind of you know i'm sure you know have the the nbc bumper before an episode that says you know the shocking reveal of genie boulet's aids diagnosis you know like that kind of thing they they never went for the the cheap uh the cheap thrill with that it was always a story of hope you're right. And and probably involved in that, too, is something I was not as privy to, but undoubtedly uh, John Wells ushering it through at the network level so that they didn't freak out. Yeah, it was probably, a you know, I'm, I feel I feel no doubt he had to do that. The other storyline that's not as showy, but I think was really good for character is um, is Benton's baby having been oh. there. Oh yes! Oh my gosh! We have had so much fun talking about little little baby Reese. 
Yeah, and and I have to say that um, you know, first of all, giving him a baby was a big was a big thing because you know there he was. But to give Benton that character and that actor a child with a you know a quote unquote disability, but one where the medical answer is not crystal clear, mm -hmm. you know. And again, the writers, we did a lot of research. We went to a lot of different schools of, you know, to visit like a deaf school and, you know, yeah. talk to a lot of different parents and a lot of different deaf people and even a deaf doctor, you know, trying to, we were, we argued about it a lot and it made it a good storyline because there wasn't a clear cut answer. This whole cochlear implant and, and all of that, you know, I mean, and the deaf community is, um, uniquely uh, expressive about what the gifts are of being deaf. Mm -hmm. in a, and, um, and because a sign language is such an expressive language, I, it was just like for writers and for a medical show, it could not have been um, a more a, a more painful, but a more important, and then to give it to Benton, who thinks he can fix anything. <laughs> right? I, yeah. yeah. It's so the, the guy who thinks he's God in the in the operating room, you you give him a a child that he can't fix, and that is right. so right. brilliant. And and we've had such a, an amazing experience so far, kind of digging into that story, and also too, you know, on the casting side of things, uh, having the luxury of having the same child actor playing Reese, uh, not only, you know, during the, the beginning of the storyline, but also when Eric comes back in the later seasons, they brought him back as well as, you know, a 12, 13, however old he was at the time. Yeah. Yeah. And you get to, as the audience, you get to have that payoff of like, hey, it's, you know, it's little baby Reese. He's all grown up now. And it was just yeah. this, yeah. Uh, yeah. it was, no, it was, that was incredible. And that was another way that the show, you know, I've heard John Wells say this before, and it was really true that one of the things everybody knows is that long running television shows start elevating off of their grounding mm -hmm. and how many divorces and how many <laughs> love affairs and how, you know, all that. And that the research is the one way you can kind of keep it tied to the world people are living in. And, yeah. um, and so that's a place where the medical research helped keep us grounded in what could have become, I don't know, whatever modeling or yeah. whatever. Could have gotten out of hand very easily. Yeah. So what lessons did you take from your time on ER onto other productions that you've gone on to work on since? Well, probably like we all do with our past, lessons that end up not being appropriate to the future. <laughs> okay. it's, it's very hard not to learn your lessons, but it's apparently harder to apply them to your change. No, I, you know, I mean, I think it was probably already embedded in me, this thing about research, but I really, really like to do research. And I really believe that that's where a lot of things happen. So while I'm doing research, this other part of my brain is starting to think about how you could fictionalize various aspects of that, you know? Yeah. And so I, I've always, I've always tried to do that and always had respect for feeling like, oh, you really should bring in the experts, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, so I think, I think that is, that's probably a main, a main thing that I took with me. Um, 
the other thing was that it was like you said, it was a pretty wide canvas and I never really wrote a straight up comedy, mm -hmm. but I really appreciated it when I went and I worked um, on Royal Pains for many seasons. Mm -hmm. And it was, it, it was a comedy. It was a straight up comedy with medicine, you know, it was even, but the medicine was always grounded. And by then, you know, when we were doing ER, um, we had that help from all those doctors who were in the room and on the set. Right. Um, and it was good because there was no internet <laughs> to, you know, I think like there was Lexus and Nexus where you could oh, yeah. on for $50 a month or something, but there wasn't, there wasn't, um, you know, you it wasn't at your fingertips to go, what are the symptoms of this or that? Right. Um, by the time I was on Royal Pains, there was this wonderful, um, uh, Norman Lear's foundation has this wonderful Annenberg foundation, which has many aspects to it. But one of them is this Hollywood health and society, and they will put writers in touch with doctors. So when we were doing Royal Pains, even though it was basically a comedy and the mm -hmm. guy MacGyver's things and all that, the medicine was still pretty real because no matter what disease we came up with, we could call up Hollywood Health and Society and they would put us in touch with somebody who does poison medicine or whatever, you know? Right. So even as crazy it was, even if you were going to string the Christmas lights and get the electricity <laughs> for the doctor to shock the person or whatever crazy thing was happening, um, that patient's recovery could still be a little grounded in real medicine, you know, yeah. which yeah. Uh, I'm sure I took with me from ER. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So uh, these next two questions are uh, actually from our listeners. We always like to give them the chance to uh, submit a couple of questions. Um, the first one you've touched on a little bit, but I'm particularly interested in um, kind of the balance balancing act. Um, what are some of the biggest challenges when writing for a medical drama? You talked about having to balance kind of the, the lighter stuff with more of the drama. What, what are some of those big challenges when you're trying to write an episode? With medicine? Uh, medicine with the tone. I mean, I'm sure there's yeah. a lot of, a lot of plates in the air. Something that I think I didn't really appreciate until afterwards, I'd never thought of it in this terms. I knew that the premise of ER was very democratic, that an mm -hmm. ER, almost anybody can walk through the door, rich people, poor people, you know, it could right, really right. speak to the anxiety of the times where, you know, the pre Obamacare, <laughs> a lot of people didn't yeah. have any coverage at all. And um, I think that having having a premise, wh whether it's a series or really, even if it was a movie or whatever, you know, I mean, feeling like making sure that the main questions of the story are linked to something that matters <laughs> or or that um, or that can fit into you know, something that makes people want to watch it. Like, I don't think it's a mis I don't think it's just random right now that like a show like Succession is speaking mm -hmm. to the zeitgeist right now. Mm -hmm. And that there's a lot of division in our country. There's a lot of uh, the rich people, we want to see them be mean and awful, you know, because mm -hmm. they're so far away from all of us. Um, whereas I think that at the time period of ER, there was much more of a, beginning anxiety about medicine. And I think that just writing to it and being able to, you know, I, maybe I'm not answering the question. No, no, um, no, this is that, all perfect. This is that, um, that keying into what your own anxiety is or your own, whatever. I mean, I said that about, I mean, I know that on that show, a lot of the stuff about the 
doctors and nurses not having time to deal with their private lives. Right. It was completely parallel to the writers and directors and actors who were feeling like they were in the middle of their lives, in the middle of their careers, and they weren't able to, you know, it mattered. It yeah. mattered that things were going by so quickly. But something I didn't appreciate at the time that I thought was great dramatic tool, and I think ER to some extent invented this. And I found out reading somebody's doctoral thesis that had been translated that we were, it was a European thing. And I was on some European television junket where they were asking Americans how to do it before we decided that we would do it the way the Europeans do it, <laughs> that um, okay. I was on. And uh, and they gave me, somebody gave me this translated thesis and it was so smart because they said the thing about ER, it created a different kind of dramatic tension because you never knew whether there was a wide tone, but that's been since Shakespeare. You have the funny, you have, the, but you never knew when somebody came through the door, whether they were gonna be like a tiny storyline, whether it was gonna remain comedic or whether it was mm -hmm. gonna, whether the silly person who's funny is gonna die or that you, there was a dramatic tension created by just not knowing because the format was a little different. Who was gonna, just go up to the OR and you'd never hear from them again and who was going to turn out to be the A story. And I thought that was so smart. And to me, in terms of what's a challenge is sometimes it's just like really making sure you follow through on your premise mm -hmm. as a writer. That That's what the ER, that place did that to drama, you know, mm -hmm. because John Wells, uh, Michael Crichton, John Wells, the beginning writers, everybody sort of sensed that it was a hall the er was a hallway that people moved through quickly right yeah and it, it led to a dramatic discovery absolutely yeah it always feels like the hospital itself is a character like it's a living breathing thing that people come in and out of if you don't see somebody for an episode it's because they're working night shift or they're off in another department it's not just characters on a screen in front of a you know two-dimensional set it's a really living living breathing thing for sure and yeah uh and the second one is uh, much simpler <laughs> uh what uh who if any was your favorite character to write for oh i do not have an answer for that because <laughs> i i liked i liked all of them i mean you're kind of in a demigod sort of position when you're writing like that. Mm -hmm. And I think that if you don't love your regulars equally, Sure. Oh, absolutely. And, and I and I do for the for the per, for the uh, sake of the person who asked this question, I do want to make sure I distinguish. Uh, I think they're asking about character versus not necessarily actor. Obviously, we you know. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But still, I I I think that kind of like a parent who just happened to have eleven children or something like that. <laughs> I think my answer is the same. I think I would even if there were ones I was drawn to. I almost had to suppress that, sure, because sure. I wanted to inherit wherever they. Whenever it was Carol Flint's up, she's on the board. She's number seven. No, she's number eleven wherever, whatever I inherited and whoever was going to be the main character, you know, mm -hmm. and it would, it would, it would depend on where they were in their arc and all exactly. of that. I, I would want to be really, um, 
responsive to them. There's something about episodic TV. See, you don't get a short answer with me, but That's there's okay. something about episodic TV that is is it's a way of creating that exists nowhere else where the actors and the writers are creating the characters together. And that's why I think a lot of times actors think they need to go tell the writer or something, but they don't. Because when you get your idea is when you're watching their dailies. When you're watching their dailies as a writer, and we used to always watch dailies together, but you're watching and you see, oh, we need more of that. Oh, we yeah. need to explore more. You see it in their performance and everything. And so um, I watched them all <laughs> and let myself be led by what they were doing and what made me curious. I want to see more of that with everybody, mm -hmm. with, with, with every single one of them. And then, of course, with our continuing cast the you know it was also the same it was like you'd learn like oh she can be funny or oh, oh yeah i want to see him fall down or, uh. or so so it really extended so no i really don't think i'm being cagey i'm maybe like a parent would be cagey about saying who their favorite <laughs> kid was sure but i don't really think i am being cagey i think i mean it yeah, well, certainly for the years you were there, I mean, you had your pick of any any one of the people who were the part of the main cast when you were there would certainly be a great answer. And like you, you said, some of those supporting cast people too, the people that you don't always think about when you think about, you know, ER, it's it really is people like Ellen Crawford and Abe Ben Ruby and Connie Brazelton. Those are the people that gave the show this extra injection of life that kind of supported it from week to week which is the supporting cast there you know that's what they're there for yes yeah but they did they helped to create the feeling of, of these that you knew these people in the er you know yeah. you knew them you knew them and you'd know them from week to week and yeah so uh one final question that we make a habit out of asking everybody uh what do you think it's important for fans of ER to know about it from your unique perspective? In other words, when you think back on your time on the show, what would you want fans to know about the experience that wouldn't necessarily be clear just from watching? I think I learned how quickly something amazing goes by. When I went onto the West Wing, I remember feeling so much more experienced watching people who didn't know how soon how soon it would be over, you know, that yeah. a few years and look how long ER lasted. I mean, but my time on it was those early years. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think that I, uh, that I probably learned from my life to really appreciate the blessings and really appreciate when things are easy and when you've got a hit on your hands and all of that kind of thing. I, I think that, um, uh, I was, you know, I, I had a niece who was about eight when the show, when I left the show and she said, Aunt Carol, I'm going to tell my friends you're still on it. Is that okay? <laughs> <laughs> and that was when I realized like I was her cachet into her <laughs> and, and yeah, you know, like to be involved in something so significant like that. It's a blink of an eye. It's a, and maybe your podcast is proving that it's not a blink of an eye, that these things continue and have second lives. And, and, and that's wonderful. That's great. I like, I like that my lesson has already been proven to be false. I'm, I'm going to have to come up with a new lesson. <laughs> <laughs> oh.